right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. I like, well, sort of a lively crowd at 1130, which is always fun. So, hey, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and take them out, and we're going to open them up to Acts chapter 4 together today. Uh, Today, we are going to continue almost a part two of sorts to uh, what we started a week ago. Uh, Last week, if you remember, uh, we started talking about the church starting to experience some opposition uh, coming against it, and we're going to continue in that uh, same kind of vein today, And, and I hope you did have some time to think about that over the past week or so. Uh, Tell me if you would agree with this. Over the past 30 to 50 years, our country has experienced some dramatic changes. Yes. All right. True or false, the religious and the moral landscape of America has changed greatly in 30 to 50 years. True. Okay. I hope you all agree with that. Uh, We are experiencing change, um, some incredible change in our country right now. Um, Some incredible stuff has taken place. Things have changed that I never thought I would see change in my entire life, and they've shifted very, very quickly. Now, what's been just as incredible for me to see as the shifting kind of landscape of America has been the church's response to that changing landscape. And what I mean by that is is it almost seems as if the church has been baffled for most of its years on how to respond to a culture that is moving in a different direction than they are. The church seems to uh, be behind and, and be on the defenses and trying to figure out how to respond to any sort of opposition that is coming against it. And so it's been incredible to watch the church get behind uh, in a lot of ways, in a lot of unhelpful ways. They get angry, they get bitter, they get frustrated, they don't know how to respond rightly. And that's led to more and more pain and frustration for the church. Now, it should not surprise us that we see what we are seeing right now. It shouldn't take you long to go through the New Testament that you uh, should not be surprised that non-Christians act like non-Christians. That shouldn't catch us off guard. It also shouldn't be a surprise that non-Christians may not particularly like Christians. They may not love us because of what we believe in. And and any sort of read through the New Testament would probably explain most of that. But that mentality has become lost to the American church. And I think we have just kind of been baffled on how to respond rightly. Now, what's also um, interesting, so you have this uh, kind of shift culturally and religiously in America. What is interesting to look at are the numbers on American Christianity right now. So I put some research together I want to share with you. Uh, this, all of this was done by Pew Research, uh, and, and they show us a few things that you and I should see about the American church. Here's what some studies show us. From 2007 to 2014, the number of people who identified themselves as Christians decreased by 8% went down by 8% in seven years, to 07 to 2014 by 8%. That is the largest decrease among any faith group out there. No faith group experienced as much decrease as the Christian church had from those years. Uh, now, interestingly as well, in those same years, 20, uh, 2007 to 2014, the fastest growing faith group was the unaffiliated group or the nuns. And I'm not talking about Catholic nuns. I'm talking people that would say uh, no religious affiliation whatsoever. And that number went up, increased by 7%. And so in in the span of seven years, the church decreased 8%. Nuns or unaffiliated went up uh, 7%. And and, and that's where we find ourselves. Now, uh, lastly, an interesting, probably the most interesting to me, that same research group did a research on faith and they categorized their findings by generation. 
So they went back and did research from 1928 until our generation uh, that we find ourselves in now. And what's interesting is starting in 1928 until now, every generation has seen the number of Protestant Christians go down while the number of unaffiliated or nuns goes up. So the Christian uh, spectrum looks like this, while the, uh, the nuns and unaffiliated look like that. All the way up until the younger millennial generation, which I'm not far behind, where you have just as many nuns or unaffiliated as you do Protestant Christians. So where before in 28, you had uh, way more Christians, way more Protestant Christians than unaffiliated. Now the scales have tipped so far that you have those numbers equaling out. And all, all things uh, kind of point to those numbers will eventually topple and there will be more unaffiliated than there are Protestant Christians in America. And so you and I could agree that that is a different America than most of you grew up in. Most of us, me included, it's a different America. There's been a huge shift in our country. And when we think about those numbers, that, that should be staggering to us. 8% decline in seven years doesn't sound like much, but when you uh, put that against the population, how many people are in our country, the numbers are staggering. When you see 7% of people say none or unaffiliated, and that rises, that is a large number. And so the question that that should lead you and I to ask ourselves is this, is the question of, is Christianity dying in America? Is the church dying in our country right now? Because when you see numbers like that and it's continuing to look bad and, and it's continuing to look like the church is going to continue to decrease and the number of unaffiliated will increase, that should lead us to say, are we going to look up in 30 to 50 years and see virtually no presence of the church at all in our country? That should be the question that we should ask ourselves. Now, let me just answer from the top that no, the church in America is not going anywhere. Christianity is not dying in America. Now, and I'm also convinced of this, that those numbers that we're talking about, the increase in nuns, the decrease in people who re represent as Christians actually isn't a bad thing in and of itself. And let me explain why before you boo me off the stage for saying that heresy around here. Here's why I don't think that those numbers are all that bad in and of themselves. Uh, if you go back in, in most all of our lifetimes here, um, especially in the Southern Bible Belt, what you had was you had a lot of people that culturally identified themselves as Christians. For many years, there was a lot of personal gain for you to check the box that you are a Christian. Whether or not you really loved or wanted to follow Jesus or had a heart for him or wanted to pursue his likeness, no matter what, if you were, be, if you were to ask for your religious affiliation, you would check Christianity. And, and so for many years, you saw people doing that, whether they actually cared for Jesus or not, they would check that box. And, and, and here's why. There was some gain to, to come for you personally if you were to say that. Here's, let me explain that. Uh, if you were to start a new business this week in Cartersville, if you back up a few years, what would be the smartest move for you to do? One of the smartest things to do when you planted your new business was to go and find the largest local church in your town and go there. And be a part, be a member, man, plug in, uh, let people see you on Sundays. Maybe even if you're feeling, uh, feeling like you can do it, man, just go ahead and get baptized to show people that you're here and you're a part of it. Because what would come of that for you? Well, people would see you, they would see this new business owner and they would say, well, we need to go give our business to them because uh, we respect them, we trust them, we think that they're, they're good people, we see them at church. And for a long time, Christianity was almost equated to patriotism. Here's what I mean by that. If you were going to be a good Christian, you needed to be a good American. And to be a good American mean, means that you need to be a Christian. That was how most of us thought for many years. That if you were going to be a faithful American, surely you went to church. Because that's what Americans do. They go to church, especially in the South. That's what we're known for. 
Uh, if you were a politician years ago, the smartest thing you could do in your local community was to go to a local church. Why? Your constituents were there. The votes were there. And so whether or not you loved Jesus at all, what you would do is you would go to the church because you knew that if you were seen there, you're going to be more likely to get votes that way. And this was the world that we lived in. Many other people didn't have necessarily many uh, kind of self-motivated intentions, but maybe they stayed going to church for many years because their family did or their friends did, and and they weren't really losing anything by it, but they thought they would go to continue that family tradition, and that's what good families do is they go to church, and so you had many people showing up on Sundays to fill churches who had no care and desire for Jesus. And so what you are starting to see is a shift in that reality in our country. Some of that still exists today. I wanna show you another uh, statistic that, that I found interesting. This is a statistic about the number of people that still claim to be Christians. This was done by the head of Lifeway Research. He said this, uh, about two-thirds of that group, speaking of the people who check uh, Christianity, two-thirds of that group don't go to church, don't believe the Bible, and don't subscribe to anything like Christian ethics. Sure, they care about Jesus, but it's certainly not central to their lives. These people are nominal Christians retaining the name of Christ, but just about nothing else. And so even within that percentage of people that still find their way into churches each week, what the research shows us is that two-thirds of those people don't read their Bibles, don't follow Jesus, don't have a passion for him. They're simply going to church, to a service. And so what is dying in America is not Christianity. What is dying in America right now is nominal Christianity, which is completely different. Nominal Christianity meaning for whatever reason, whether it's political, social, personal, uh, family reasons, for whatever reason, you show up to a church and you identify as a Christian, not because of Jesus, but for some other gain. And our country is beginning to take a shift to where for you to identify yourself as a Christian, it may actually start costing you something. The personal gains have been left behind, and now you may actually have to give something up to follow him. And so what the numbers are showing us is not that Christians are leaving the church, but nominal Christianity is beginning to die off. And I think that that is going to be the best thing that's happened to the American church in a very long time, because I feel like a sifting effect is taking place, and the church is going to have to relearn how to be the church again. The church is gonna have to learn what it actually looks like to live in the world. No longer can we just open up our doors and say, come, and expect them to show up. No longer can we say, hey, why don't you come hear pastor tell you about Jesus in our church? Because if they're non-Christians, they may not wanna come to your church. They don't wanna hear from your pastor. And so what you're seeing is this reality that the church, if we are going to move forward, we're gonna have to be people that begin to take the mission of God seriously. I love what Russell Moore said. Russell Moore is the, uh, he works for the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He says this, he said, the church is going to have to understand that it is not a moral majority, but instead the church is a prophetic minority. And what he means by that is that, uh, is this for a long time, the church thought uh, maybe our job in America is to dictate ethics and culture. Our job is to kind of dictate morality. And so uh, the church for many years said, if we can just get people to behave, we can leave Jesus in the rear view. So if you can adopt some sort of a moral or ethics standard of Christianity, that's victory for us. Evangelism got left behind and we paraded around ethics instead of the gospel. And so our role as Christians is not to ask people to behave. Our role as Christians in the world is to take a message that raises dead people and brings them back to life. That's the message that we proclaim. It's nothing about how you behave, it's that you cannot behave 
And so God sent his son to die in your place. And so Russell Moore says, we have to get past this point of, we're not a moral majority church. Our job is not to win back the days of old in America. And if we ever need a reminder before the political season, there is no political candidate that is going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Our hope is not found in any politician, no matter which side you are on. Hope is not found there. Our hope is in heaven and it's in a man named Jesus. And so I don't care what politician you follow, they are not going to bring about change. And we should not hope in a politician to change the country because the only hope for people is the gospel. And the church is the driving force of the gospel. And so we need to understand we are not a moral majority. If you're hoping for a political candidate to change anything, you're gonna be sadly mistaken for a very long time. The hope is the gospel to the nations not a political candidate. So Russell Moore says that we need to be a prophetic minority. What he means by that is this, that you and I, we carry a supernatural message and people may not like you for it. They may not like you for that message. And so what we're seeing take place in our country is there's going to be a shift more and more away from cultural nominal Christianity and the church is going to have to learn how to be the church, engage their neighbors And hear me, I'm not talking about picket signs and yelling loud. For far too long, the church thought that if we would just scream loud enough, surely you all will change. And so we left relationships behind and we took a podium and a platform and social media was our worst enemy. And we said, if we can just be loud enough, surely they'll listen. And we've gotten ourselves to a point where no one wants to hear anything we have to say because what comes out of our mouths is never helpful. But as a prophetic minority, what we say is a gospel that God loves you and he sent his son Jesus for you. And people still may be offended by it. So as this continues to unfold in our country, what could take root and take shape is that you and I, as we live this out, we may start to be opposed by people. People may not love you for what you believe in. You may start to experience a little bit of opposition come against you for what you believe and our goal is to continue to stay faithful. So with that said, I want, to, I want us to turn our attention towards a church that actually lived through something like this and see what they did because I think there is great wisdom for the American church right now in our day to hear what the scriptures has to say to us. So with that said, if your Bibles are out, let's go to Acts 4, uh, 15 to 22. Acts 4, starting in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, and they said, whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So if you remember last week to catch you up in case you weren't hearing this story, what you're seeing is you were seeing the release of Peter and John. 
And they were arrested for uh, what had taken place and they were taken captive and they were uh, getting ready to release them. And, and I love the response of the religious leaders that are letting them go. They say, look, uh, we can't deny what's happened. We can't deny this incredible stuff that's taken place. But they thought what they could control was their response as they went out. They, they thought they could shut Peter and John up. And so what they did was they said, hey, no more can you talk about Jesus. You have to be quiet because we can't deny anything. Now, I love Peter and John's response because all this is taking place because of a lame beggar that got healed. I love their response. They're like, hey, bro, I, I hear you, but we, we can't stop talking about Jesus. I mean, we hear what you're saying, but we really can't shut up about him. And I love their response in 19 and 20. They say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Because what you're seeing is Peter and John who walk so closely with Jesus and they've had their lives so radically changed and turned over that Jesus changed everything for them. And they couldn't help but talk about this savior that had, had taken them from death to life, that had changed their entire uh, shape and view on the world. He had absolutely radically changed their lives. And they say, we cannot stop speaking about him and, and what we have seen and heard because that is in, it's the best news in the universe. We can't stop talking about it. And so I wanna ask you, I think, I think for a lot of us, we may not have much to talk about because we aren't walking closely with Jesus. You, for yourself, are you walking closely with Jesus? To where if someone was to tell you to hush, you would say, man, I cannot but speak of what I have seen and heard. I cannot help but to tell people about him because he has changed my life. He's made me a new person. He's, he's purchased me by his blood. He's made me brand new. He's changed everything for me. I can't help but tell people about him. Is that you? Are you walking closely with Jesus to where that is your response? And so Peter and John are released and, and they're sent back out after being charged not to speak anymore. And they say, man, we just, we can't stop. And I, and I love where they go next. So they're being released and they're threatened to, 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 be, to be quiet and they're, they're let go. For the rest of our time together, I wanna look at their response next. What they do is they go back and, and we start to see why prayer was central and primary to their lives as Christians when they're facing opposition. Prayer was absolutely central after they were released and let go. And so for us, I think it's going to be interesting for us to, to stop and look because as opposition may come your way, what is going to be your response when those moments come? And I think we have a lot to learn from these guys. So uh, let, let's pick back up in Acts chapter four and we're gonna read verse 23. Acts 4, 23 says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had to say to them. The first thing I wanna show you is after being released and threatened and told not to speak anymore, who do they go and pray with? Who do they pray with? They pray with their friends. They pray with their friends. They immediately go back to their friends. Did you ever have a moment in school growing up where you and some friends got in trouble and uh, you got sent to the principal's office for something? All day, I feel like I'm the only one that was a, a, a terrible kid coming up. So, all right, that was my experience. I'll let you in on my life. I'll pull the curtain back. All right, so uh, I would get in trouble very frequently as a frequent attender to the principal's office. And so uh, what would happen is the friends that I would hang out with, we would all get in trouble. For some reason, I was the one that always got busted. And so they would all get let go and they would say, hey, Zach, come with us. So I would go and, and they would tell me, I would get to the principal's office and he would say, hey, why were you doing this? You have to stop doing this. Don't do this anymore, whatever. What would I do as, as soon as I was released from that office? You go right back to your friends. 
The same fools that got you in trouble, you go running back to them and you, and you get back into the same, same mess again. And that's exactly what Peter and John are doing here, except they weren't hanging out with fools and they weren't doing anything wrong. They were honoring the Lord, but, but Peter and John run right back to their friends and they go and they report back everything that had happened to them. They said, man, guess what happened? They, they told us we can't talk about Jesus anymore. They told us we had to be quiet. They told us, and we, we said, we can't, we can't do that. We can't, we can't deny what he's done. And they go and report back to their friends everything that had happened. And they go to their friends for prayer. And they say, man, we need each other. We have to have one another. We need to pray and cry out to God together. They knew they needed their friends. And I wanna ask you, when opposition does come your way, when you experience something like this, who are the friends that you're gonna run to when those moments come? Who are the friends that you're going to run to whenever the heat gets turned up on you a little bit? People start coming at you. Who are you gonna run to? Do you have those friends in your life that you're gonna be able to run to that are going to say, man, don't stop, keep going. Are they gonna be there to spur you on, hold you accountable, tell you not to quit, keep moving. Don't stop pursuing all that God has for you. Keep running your race, keep moving in that direction. Are your friends gonna tell you, hey, man, if they want you to shut up, shut up. If they want you to be quiet, be quiet. Who are you going to run to when those moments come? Because I know this, and we say this all the time, and we can't say it enough. If you live in isolation as a Christian, you living out the mission of God is going to be nearly impossible. You cannot live this out on your own because inevitably something's going to come against you and you need those people that are gonna be with you to hold you accountable, to keep you moving, to say hard things and to spur you on. And if you don't have that, life is going to be difficult for you as a Christian. It's going to be hard. You're going to give up. You're gonna throw in the towel because you have no one in your corner. And so who are the friends that you have that you're sharing life with? I have the privilege of overseeing all of our discipleship and, and group stuff at Crosspoint. And I, I like to just say this as often as I can to, so you can hear it from me. Groups at Crosspoint, they are not something we do so I can just check the calendar off. I am not interested in gathering together for the sake of checking boxes. I know that it's in those relationships that Jesus-centered community is built. I have men in my life that will hold me accountable. They'll say hard things to me. I can say hard things to them. And they're gonna be those friends that I can run to whenever these moments come that I can go in and tell them, man, here's what's happening. I need you guys to encourage me. I need you to pick me up. Groups are so much more than just a checkbox that we go to. If you are not in a group, man, I'm telling you, it's imperative for you to have friends. It is imperative for you to have friends that you are gonna run to, that you are going to pray with whenever opposition comes your way. The next thing I wanna look at after they run back to their friends and they begin to pray, I wanna look at who they prayed to, who they prayed to, and it was simply this, they prayed to God. Now, you're probably thinking, no kidding, they prayed to God, who else would they pray to in a moment like this? But what I wanna show you is we're gonna read a couple of more verses. I want you to listen to how they address God when they go to him in prayer. I want you to hear the words they use. Let's pick up in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
The first thing I wanna show you from this is when they cry out to God together, they address him as sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, meaning they are crying out and submitting themselves to God and saying, God, we wanna recognize now that you are in control of everything. God, there is nothing outside of your hands. You are strong enough, you are big enough, you are able to do whatever you please. God, nothing is outside of your control. And it's incredible to me to see that response because what they're experiencing is opposition and persecution. They just got released from prison and they fall to God saying, God, we know you haven't lost control. We know that people are coming against us. We know uh, that they want us to be quiet. We know we are experiencing pain, but we know you have not turned your back on your people. We know that you are with us and you are for us. We know you have gone nowhere. And let me tell you this, if you have a small unbiblical view of God, Whenever opposition comes your way, the first person you're gonna call into question is God himself. The first person you're gonna put on trial is God. When opposition comes and, and life gets hard and, you, and maybe you thought the Christian life was promises of ease and, and not a lot of pain and not a lot of frustration, whenever something bad happens, the first thing you're gonna do is say, God, where did you go? Why did you leave me here? Why did you forsake me? And it was Jesus that said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always. But if we don't have a right view of God, if we think that someone has taken over his throne, then we're gonna call God into question and it is going to wreck us. What the church needed to know as they faced opposition was they needed to know, is God able to deal with our threats? Can God handle what we're facing? And the resounding answer from them was absolutely. His hand is not too short to save. No one is stronger than him. No one is more powerful than him. There is nothing that is going to just stand in the way of the promises of God. There is nothing that is going to come against him. All things are going to work together for good for the children of God, and they believed it because they understood that God was sovereign, God was in control, and he would not leave them. And so for you, I want to challenge you to get in your Bible and have a true biblical understanding of who God is because when suffering comes your way, you cannot call God into question. We have to understand that God is still ruling and still reigning over all. The next thing that they refer to God as is the creator God. They recognize him as the creator of all things, as the one who made uh, the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And it's a perfect reminder for you and me because no matter who comes against us, whether it's a person, one person or a nation of people, no matter who comes against us, nothing matters. They can't, they can't, no, no, no one can stand in the way of the creator God of the universe. I love Romans 8. Paul says this, that, that all things work together for the good of the children of God. Then he goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the, the, the short answer to that is a lot of people can be against us. We're seeing people being against God's people right here in the text. They're, they're against them. But what Paul is saying is if God is for us, who cares who is against us? Who cares who comes against you? Because if the creator God, the one that spoke everything into existence from nothing, if, if he is on your side, why does it matter who else is against me? Why does it matter if someone wants to oppose me because I know the eternal God is for me? That there is no one that can stand in the way of God's love for you, Christian. That that creator God is with you. So if he's with you, why does it matter who's against you? And so as they face opposition, they needed that reminder. And the last thing they claim 
about God is this, that he is the predetermining God. He is the predetermining God. In the last couple of verses, 27 and 28, as they're facing all of this and they're remembering his sovereignty, they're crying out to him as the creator, they're remembering the cross of Jesus. And what they're remembering about it is they're saying, hey, all of this stuff, your hand and your plan, it predestined it to take place. The cross of Jesus was not an accident. And they understood this. They said the, the cross was not plan B. This was God's plan A. And so we don't have to fear when opposition comes because we know that if God can use the death of his son Jesus for good, surely he can use this suffering that I'm experiencing for good. The Bible refers to Jesus in Revelation as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And that truth is what gave these people encouragement. They knew that nothing was taking place by accident, that, that if God could use his son's death on a cross for good, then maybe God had let this suffering into their lives for good as well. Maybe God will use the persecution of his church in a strategic and powerful way. Maybe the church kind of losing the culture wars in America is not a bad thing in and of itself. Maybe God is doing something in our midst right now. And we have to slow down long enough to see it. But this church, they understood that God's plans were predetermined, that he was with them and he was for them. And, and they saw that demonstrated through the cross of Jesus. They understood that while the world thought they were doing a good thing by killing Jesus, they didn't realize that it was going to redeem the children of God. While the world thought they were killing off God's son, what they were really doing was buying redemption, justification for you, for me, for anyone who would believe in Jesus. Where the wrath of God was placed onto him for you. And he set you free from your sin and yourself at that cross. And that was predetermined. And if God can do that, Surely, he can use their suffering for good. I want you to hear what a, a pastor, old pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones says about these verses. I'll put it on the quote on the screen. He said, the cross an accident, the cross a surprise, the cross something that might not have happened and that need not have happened, the cross merely something that God uses. No, the cross was planned, foreordained before the world was ever created. Before man was ever made, God had planned the death of Christ, his son. This is the explanation, and these first believers had seen it. And so you have a church that remembers over anything else, Jesus crucified for them. And I think we need to remember that as well. The last thing that I wanna show you from this text, we saw who they prayed with, they saw who they prayed to. Last thing I wanna show you is what they prayed for. They just now, it's, I love this, they get to the end of their prayer and then they ask God for something. Uh, so, so note that. But let's look at what they prayed for. They prayed for this, they simply asked for boldness. They asked for boldness. Let's go to verses 29 through 31 together. The Bible says, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love the confidence in God that the church has in this moment. What I love is that they go to God and they don't ask him to end the suffering. They don't say, God, if you would, would you alleviate the suffering from us? Would you, uh, would you maybe pick your church up, set us on the other side of Jerusalem where no one uh, is gonna come against us, where people like us, God, take us over there. They don't say, God, would you come and would you wipe out our oppressors? Would you uh, kill off these people who are against us? God, would you uh, protect us so much that we are bulletproof and untouchable? 
What they pray for is they pray for more boldness. And I believe it is in that that they're recognizing, God, this may continue. This may get worse. And God, as this happens, what we need from you is supernatural boldness. We need your help to continue to stay firm and to, to boldly and faithfully proclaim your, world, your word to a world that hates us so much. They don't ask for it to end. And what's incredible to me is if you fast forward a few chapters, you begin to see some of these guys getting killed. There are people that lose their lives for following Jesus. Peter, one of these two men, church history would tell us, goes to a cross upside down to his death. Why? He wouldn't shut up about Jesus. He asked for boldness, God gives it to him and it eventually cost him his life. Church, we have to understand that a call to follow Jesus, hear me, is a call to suffer. And we may not experience this right now. I may not walk out of the door today and have to worry about somebody taking my head off or going to put me on a cross upside down on 41. I'm not super worried about that today. But as, that, as the culture continues to shift farther and farther away, we should not be surprised when opposition comes our way. A call to follow Jesus is a call to lay down your life no matter what it costs you. No matter who um, it comes against you, no matter who opposes you, no matter who doesn't love you anymore, no matter who feels in whatever way about you, the call to follow Jesus is a call to let all of that go because we need to remember if God is for us, who cares who's against us? Because the king is with us. And I love this. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit flooded their hearts in that moment. The building shook that they were in. So what God does, God in that moment gives them exactly what they asked for. I'm gonna give you boldness. You're gonna keep proclaiming my word. You're gonna keep going out and staying faithful to the word. And it's going to cost you, but you're gonna continue to go that way. I'm gonna give you everything you need to stay faithful to the word of God to continue to preach that boldly in the world. He gives them exactly what they needed in that moment. Exactly what they asked for. The room shook and he gave it to them in that moment. And what I love about that is the heart of the people, the heart of the church here. It's like I said, they didn't ask for their oppressors to be killed off. They didn't say, God, go and kill all of these guys who were coming against us. They had such a love for people that they said, though they want to kill us, we need boldness to go and share a message that will change their life. Even though they want us dead and arrested, we want to continue to proclaim a gospel that will change them. We want to continue to share the mercies of God with them, despite what they are showing us. So church, is that your response when opposition comes, that, comes your way? It may look different to us than it does to this church here. Who knows, this could be your future one day. But what is your response to that moment when that comes? Are, are we prepared for that? Because for far too long, we have taken the unbiblical way of saying we're just going to yell loudly and be angry instead of being helpful and Jesus-centered. We've tried to find a podium when what we really needed the whole time was boldness, not boldness to yell louder, but boldness to love people more. Boldness to take a gospel to people who are desperate to hear it, despite what the ramifications are.
And so we've tried the yelling approach for far too long. And if the church is going to continue in America, we are going to have to take a different direction. We're gonna have to try a new way. And so for some of us, we need boldness for, we need boldness, man, just to even get out of the door and tell someone about Jesus to begin with. And hey, I, I get it, man. It's, I, I'm a guy, I want people to like me. I want everyone to think well of me. I want people to appreciate me, respect me. I wanna be friendly. I don't, I don't want any trouble in life, man. I just wanna kind of take it easy. And so I get that sometimes that first step of sharing Jesus with someone may mean that someone thinks differently about you. And for some of us, I think that that fear cripples us and terrifies us. And we can't do anything because that, that fear is so crippling that we just kind of sit still. And look, I get it. It's terrifying sometimes to strike up that conversation with people, to build relationships for the purpose of that conversation to happen. I get that that is incredibly difficult. But some of us need boldness to overcome that step. Some of us may be doing this already. We may be sharing the gospel faithfully and, and maybe you are experiencing some opposition against you. And hear me, man, again, when I'm talking about opposition, I'm not talking about somebody likes you because you're kind of a jerk and you're being mean to them or because you violated your HOA deal and they want you to cut your grass. I'm not talking about opposition to that. I'm talking about someone who does not like you simply because you love Jesus. And if you're sharing right now, man, you're trying to share the gospel faithfully and you may have someone coming against you personally right now, what you need is boldness from the Lord to continue to faithfully tell them that God loves them and he made a way for them through his son, Jesus. And so I believe all of us, starting with me, we need some form of boldness. We may be in different places, but we need boldness to do what God is calling us to do as the church. And so as we end today, I, I can think of no better way than to end than do exactly what the church did in Acts chapter four. If you need boldness, you simply go to the Lord and ask him for it. He'll give it to you. He did. He gave it to them in Acts 4. They said, Lord, we need, we need boldness to speak faithfully. And what does he do? He fills them with his spirit. And he says, here you have it. And so what I wanna do is I wanna ask you right now, whether you're the person that needs boldness to begin sharing the gospel, maybe for the first time, or, or maybe you're the person that's doing it and just needs to continue to, to get some boldness from the Lord to stay faithful. I wanna ask you, if you in any way, shape, or form right now need boldness, I wanna ask you to stand to your feet. If you in any way, shape, or form need any ounce of boldness within you, I want you to stand up. You don't have to stand up because other people are. If you, if you truly know in your heart that you need boldness from the Lord, I want you to stand. What I wanna do is, if there's someone standing around you, man, I just want you to kind of just put your hand on a shoulder somewhere that's okay. Put your hand somewhere <laughs> safe. There we go, somewhere safe. And if there's somebody standing up around you right now that doesn't have somebody standing with them, I want somebody to walk over and, and, and put a hand onto them. And here's what I wanna do. Jesus says, we have not because we don't ask. And so some of us just simply need to ask for that right now. Some of us need boldness from, from God, just like the church in Acts chapter four. And so as I pray, I want you to pray as well. And let's go and ask him to give us what only he can do. Father, we stand here today understanding that this type of boldness is only from you. And God, we admit that, that at times it is scary and daunting to think about the ramifications of this and to think about what this means for us, God, but, but we stand here with our hands open asking you to give us boldness. God, we stand here, we ask for you to fill us like only you can. 
and for you to give us exactly what we need. God, you know the needs in every single person that is standing right now. You know where they're scared. You know where they fall short. And God, I wanna, I wanna just ask if you would fill them right now. Whatever that is, would you fill that spot and would you help them to, to, to have boldness in that area to, to proclaim your word faithfully? God, we know their eternal significance to what you're calling us to. And God, no matter what we experience on this earth, I pray that you would help every single one of us now that is standing up to, to understand that you are with us and you are for us and that you're going to be there every step of the way. God, remind us when it gets scary, when life gets hard, that you have not left us and you have not forsaken us. Father, fill us with your spirit like only you can. Give us everything we need. God, we submit our lives before you and ask you to do whatever you would with us. Father, we ask all of this in the mighty and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.